listening to The Book Judge, a podcast about books that you should read if you're interested in business. I'm your host, Conrad Chua. This is your curated reading list that will give you a better grip on how to approach the complex issues that businesses face. Today's episode is the book Cubed by Nikhil Saval. At a time when everyone is rethinking what the office should look like, this is a timely read to understand why the office you had was designed the way it was. You need to read this book now because many organizations are planning or implementing return-to-work policies. And this is your chance to understand how office design influences behavior. If you're able to contribute to your organization's return-to-work discussion, you could improve your company culture. I have to admit, I'm a bit of a geek when it comes to office design. I always try to arrange meetings in other offices just to run my eye over their layout or how people decorate the desk and how all this creates a certain atmosphere and culture. There's definitely a certain design aesthetic that goes with different industries. There's the tech behemoth office with ping pong tables, gyms, huge cafeterias and meeting rooms with glass all around. Frankly, all the Facebook, Google, Amazon offices I've visited all look alike after a while. Then you have the more staid cubicle farm that you see in established financial institutions, along with the mahogany-lined meeting rooms with that long table that makes it very clear who's supposed to talk and who's supposed to keep silent during a meeting. Saval's book starts with the origins of the white-collar workforce, the humble clerk. The clerk has been around for centuries in different forms. Famous people like Samuel Pepys and Benjamin Franklin worked as clerks. But the office as we know it only starts in the late 19th century with the expansion of rail companies. These new companies required huge amounts of coordination and gave rise to paperwork and bureaucracy. It also changed the way clerical work was seen. Before, a shipping company might have only one clerk sitting right next to the owner and it was an apprenticeship the owner would teach the clerk how the business was run. But when the rail companies expanded in the late 19th century, there was a huge demand for these coordinated processes. Hence, the task was subdivided, just like an assembly line, and there was no hope that any clerk would learn everything about the business. This culminated with Frederick Taylor. Taylor is famous for going around with a stopwatch to record the time it took to do everything. And he was relentless in suggesting how work should be organized to squeeze out every ounce of efficiency. He was, yes, a consultant. White-collar work became associated with drudgery, a far cry from the Latin roots of the word office, which meant duty. Even today, we sometimes still use that notion to describe the office of the president, or the office of the Prime Minister. There's always been a tension between the white and blue-collar workforce. White-collar workers thought of themselves as the new middle class with ambitions to advance socially, while blue-collar workers or farmers felt that they actually produced something compared to these clerks who, at best, reproduced things. 
Even today, I can see this tension of what does an executive actually do or produce. I remember just two weeks into lockdown, my daughter turned around and said she'll never want to grow up to be like me because all I do was have meetings. She wants to be a vet who actually does something. There's nothing like an eight-year-old to cut through job description business BS about coordinating, leading, maximizing. The office went through the next development in America, specifically in the cities of New York and Chicago. This was the age of the skyscraper. The early skyscrapers were built for individual companies. These were the ones that you see almost like art pieces and they had huge amounts of character. But soon, skyscrapers and office towers were made to be used by any corporation. They had to be rentable, which meant there was the commercial real estate companies that dictated what went into an office tower. By this time, white-collar work had also provided employment opportunities for women. Of course, there was not any idea of gender equality. Women were promoted not because of their skills in stenography, but whether they could be effective servants to the male chief executives. It seems crazy now, but women were regularly fired because they could not or would not make coffee for their male bosses. While Saval's book looks mostly at offices in America, he does point out the origins of the open-planned offices can be traced to post-war Germany. Over there, there was the idea of an opened organic office called the Landschaft. This was supposed to bring the office to a more human scale, with no closed doors and only some plants and partitions. There would be break rooms for people to have conversations. The entire idea of the open office was to have that environment where serendipitous conversations could take place and new ideas be created. It was supposed to be the bedrock of the new knowledge economy. Of course, looking back now, we can only laugh at how that vision was warped into the open office hell that many people complain about. I swear, open plan offices are the big driver in the popularity of Bose or Sony noise cancelling over-ear headphones. I myself don't mind the ambient noise as I can mentally block out conversations while I work. It's actually the unscheduled drop-ins from people that proved to be a greater distraction to me than noise. This is the part of the podcast where I place the spotlight on one part of the book that you can use immediately in your business or in an interview or just to impress your business school friends. I call this the Did You Know section. The Aeron Chair by Herman Miller is an iconic piece of office furniture. You find it in every tech unicorn. It's hugely comfortable, even though it looks very austere with its mesh seat and back. I myself am sitting on one right now as I make this recording. Saval traces the origins of this chair to 1994, when Herman Miller had developed it not for investment bankers or consultants who want to look cool, but for the elderly in nursing homes. 
of course, it was way too expensive for their market. So, in Soval's words, what had originally been designed to prevent bed sores would now protect the sore asses of engineers. This was a godsend to the employees of the 1990s dot-com companies who spent almost 16 hours in front of a desktop. What surprised me even more was that the Herman Miller Company had earlier designed that less loved icon of the office, the cubicle. They had several designs, and you have to hand it to their marketing team,、uh, who called one of them the living office. Their idea was to give office workers their own little space that they could customize and make their own. Again, like with so many of the grand visions in this book, cubed. The reality turned out to be a grim nightmare for hundreds of thousands of workers. I still remember my first job, where I was led to a grey cubicle that seemed to swallow me once I entered. I could not peer over the high partitions, even when standing up, and the only liberation seemed to be lunch or break time. Saval does pay tribute to the cubicle's unique place in popular culture. Much of that very popular comic series Dilbert occurs at the cubicle. Similarly, the hit TV series The Office, which I have to admit I've never watched other than through gifs and memes. Then there is the classic 1990s slacker movie Office Space. There's this iconic scene where three characters take out their frustration on the office printer. So. Bear this in mind if you're in management and thinking about the workplace layout. A well-designed workplace can be the foundation for a great team, but a poorly designed one, and your people can start going postal. Saval talks only briefly about that latest office design fad. Where the office became becomes like a hotel, California. Your company just doesn't want you to ever leave. They provide an office which has everything from gyms, massages, laundry, even beds for napping. This started with the tech companies in Silicon Valley, where the founders graduated from Stanford and hired lots of graduates from Stanford themselves, and they wanted to make that transition from college campus to work life. As seamless as possible, these companies resembled college dorms, with workers pulling all-nighters and surviving on pizza and Dr Pepper. There's even this management axiom, sometimes attributed to Jeff Bezos, that if a team couldn't be fed on two pizzas, that team was just way too big. Of course, a company campus that looks more like a college frat dorm encourages. Certain behaviors that are, again, inappropriate in a workplace. It also discourages people at different stages in their careers, whether that be women or parents with children. And strangely, while Silicon Valley companies talk about employee empowerment and trust, there are some companies that famously want their employees in the office all the time. Saval talks about the controversy. When the then new CEO of Yahoo and Google alum Marissa Meyer tried to stop employees from telecommuting or working from home, and the late Steve Jobs insisted that 
you could only do good work at Apple if you were in the office, because that's how good design and technology was developed. Well, that's what he thought. Of course, Steve Jobs was also obsessive about secrecy and would never allow anyone to bring their work home. This kind of philosophy was already under strain, even before COVID nineteen. High rents meant that people in Silicon Valley companies would have to commute huge distances just to work at a place like Apple. For every book I introduce, I have this segment called the author question. One question that I could ask the author. Saval wrote this book before COVID nineteen, so my question to him would be: What are the top issues? That companies have to grapple with now that the office is no longer in the office building, but the office is now in your employee's home. I'll tweet this question to Nikhil Saval, and I'll let you know when he replies. That's all for this episode of the Book Church. You can subscribe this to this podcast through Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And quite recently. You can now get this podcast through Amazon Music. So, if you have a A L E X A, I don't want to say out the, root, the the whole name, or, or else you'll uh, start off your smart speaker. You can listen to this podcast with your A L E X A. If you go to your regular podcast provider, you can also leave a rating for this show. It helps others discover this show. If you have comments, you can tweet me. At Conrad Chua one six. That's at Conrad Chua, Chua spelled C H U A one six, or send me a DM on Instagram. I'm Chua K H there. That's C H U A K H. Till next time, this is your book judge, Conrad Chua. <laughs>